What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Daniel and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. In this episode, we were joined by the polar explorer, businessman and philosopher Erling Kage. And he was interviewed by Razi Iqbal of the BBC on his new book, Philosophy for Polar Explorers, where he details the lessons that you can learn from his fascinating life as one of the world's most respected polar explorers and adventurers. We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. I'm a journalist for the BBC. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. Now, you can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here today with Arling Kaga. But before we look at the, some of the things that you've reflected on in this particular book, which has been published in Norwegian for, for some years, I, I, I just want to take you back a little bit to... The, the impulses for being the explorer that you became, because as a child, you were not somebody who was particularly successful in your group of friends. You weren't particularly academic at school and so on. Just paint me a picture a little bit of what your life was like, say, from the ages of that you can remember to being a teenager. Yeah, certainly I um I was, I wouldn't think maybe not, you know, a proper loser, but I was uh, uh, bottom three in class um, in almost any field for 12 years in a row. I was heavily dyslectic, so I couldn't pronounce my name before I was 10 years old. And I couldn't even say dyslexia before I was 20. So socially, I did not, didn't do that well. But however, I kept that spirit of exploration in my mind. And I think we're all born explorers. When I look at my kids, as soon as they learn how to walk, they walk to the house, out to the house and start to wonder what was hidden behind the horizon. So we all have that spirit and that spirit never goes away. And somehow I kept it. And I think one reason I kept it more than others was because uh, life was not only easy, because I think if life is too easy, you don't have, you know, that much to fight for. Well, well, that's one of the things that you that you write about in this book. And you relate it particularly not just to the West, but to Norway in particular, that, that there is this sense that you, you can, you tend to make your your life harder for yourself than it actually needs to be. Just explain that. Yeah, you know, I think as a Norwegian, I'd also think for many English people, not everybody, but, you know, most people, you know, you need to make your life more difficult than necessary. Quite often, you know, we learn that, you know, we should also always choose the easiest option, uh, kind of happiness from, you know, moment to moment throughout the day. 
is a goal in itself. But my experience is the opposite. I think, you know, you really have to choose the most difficult options quite often in life, to have a free life and also to have a meaningful life. And I think when Mallory, George Mallory, was asked in the early 2020s, why do you climb Everest? And he famously, famously replied, because it's there. I think, you know, we actually, what he actually meant was to say that it's very few things in life you have to do. You certainly don't have to climb Everest and you hardly have to do anything else either. So it's just a matter about, you know, degrees of making life more difficult than it has to be. You, you mentioned in the book that uh, if you had grown up in Sudan, perhaps you would not feel that way. So you're actually making a point about the developed north and the global south and having a level of comfort that that you have to fight against almost. Absolutely. I think it's that's a very valid point because it's quite a few billion people on earth that certainly don't have any need for making their lives more difficult than they already are. But uh, as, a, you know, as, a, as a Norwegian, you are pretty privileged. And also, of course, not all Brits are privileged, but uh, many are. And then, you know, in one way, you don't need to do anything throughout the day. I mean, if you live with your mother and she's happy to cook for you, you can just stay in bed all day. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, that's why, you know, I think, you know, that's why you actually have to get up early in the morning to do something that makes sense. The, the, this getting up early, I mean, what's interesting about this book is that you, you, it could be regarded as, on the face of it, as a self-help book. But it's also full of your own very personal, private reflections and, and your philosophy of life, one, yeah. one could argue. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's that's what I try to do. And I don't look at it as a self-help book. I don't, you know, if but I'm sure, you know, others do, and I'm happy with that. But I I wanted to write something philosophical, personal on subjects I find uh, deeply important and also to use my experiences from the ice and the mountains and the oceans and the forests, but also as a family father with three daughters to kind of reflect on, you know, what's a meaningful life and how can you make your life much better than it, you know, than, than it is. And it's interesting that you you don't necessarily equate doing something extraordinary with having a meaningful life. You remind the reader time and again that that, that actually just taking care of your family and 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 get going going through a terrible potentially terminal illness with you know is something if you do it with grace and you show courage then in a way that gives your life meaning and it doesn't have to be these kind of big adventures that that many people would find it very difficult to aspire to yeah <laughs> i it was a bit surprising for me because for many years i uh, did extreme expeditions and uh, i found you know great meaning in doing these expeditions and i also thought it was the most challenging thing i could do but then i got one daughter two daughters three daughters and eventually they were teenagers and you know i have to say it's much more complicated and you know much more hardship to raise three daughters than climbing Everest. That, that's an extraordinary statement. I, I, explain why you think that is, because many people would say they wouldn't dispute what you're saying, I'm sure, because most people have the ordinariness of that life of having children. And even if they don't have children, their lives are prosaic. But, but putting that against 
something that very few people have done does does seem to be a, a, an odd juxtaposition. Yeah, you can say um, on one hand, the last part of getting up, up to the summit of Everest, like from 8,000, 8,500 meters up to 8,850, extremely hard. And it's uh, risky, it's dangerous, it's uh, you have pain all the way. So, but it only lasts for a few days. And of course, it's a long time of preparations beforehand. Quite a few people are watching you. So kind of all, you're even considered to be a very courageous guy. And people are impressed by what you're doing and they even write about it. While I think, you know, with, with kids, I can remember how, you know, night after night after night, I was carrying my oldest daughter because she had heavy uh, uh, stomach pains back and forth uh, the floor over over, over flat. And, you know, it's almost like uh, torture because you never get proper sleep. And it lasts, you know, days, nights pass by and then weeks and eventually months pass by. And the mother of my kids, my girlfriend at the time and me, you know, we were absolutely weird out and almost desperate. And uh, but interestingly, so that's kind of, you know, that's, you know, as hard plus minus as climbing, you know, maybe not Everest, but kind of at least very high mountain. But then, you know, you're responsible for these kids for years to come. But today, when I look up back to those nights, which I felt felt very tiring and also kind of unhappy uh, nights, when I think about them, those nights today, I think about them as rich, warm, and important, and also very happy nights, because I think about, you know, the closeness to the kids, doing the right thing, feeling meaning, meanings in the daily life. So that's also interesting, I think, to, you know, it's something that you think about as absolutely unhappy circumstances at one, you know, at one time. A few years pass by and they think about the same circumstances, very happy. Let, let's let's uh, look at the issue of courage since you mentioned it in that answer, but also in your book, you deal with the issue of courage. And, and I'm, I'm particularly interested in this in the context of that very hard last part of climbing Everest, because you focus on it a, a, a little in the book. Just talk us through that moment when you are on the the last meters the south summit the cor- is it the cornis traverse yeah yeah it's about 8750 meters so you have about 400 meters left to climb and uh, hike and it's about 100 meters of altitude and uh, at that stage at least for me i was so tired i fell asleep actually sitting in my backpack and uh, and uh, you walk in this uh, last meters and you have this uh, kind of cliff you're walking, traversing, and you have two kilometers down on one side and 3,000 meters or three kilometers down on the other side. And, but at that time, you're kind of very much a part of nature. So if um, you don't feel, you're not super scared, but you're always very concerned and you also kind of, kind of, one-dimensional in your head, almost like an animal. All you want to do is to get to the summit. Although, you know, it's not rational. It's just one way. It doesn't make sense. You should make the turn around. But at that stage, you know, it's, it's, it is an absurd thing to, do, to, to climb Everest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, presumably you don't have any regrets about that. Not at all. Today, I'm, I'm proud about my uh, expeditions. I'm not thinking about it that often, but uh, I think it was a um, fantastic time. 
And I obviously did most of my expeditions because I had something within myself I needed to satisfy, a strong desire to do extreme things. But then again, it's really nice afterwards that, you know, that you can write about it, talk about it and uh, inspire people. Because, as I said, I didn't do it because I wanted to be kind to other people. But then it's a very nice and surprising consequence that people like to know about and learn from what you have been doing. Earlier, you said that curiosity has always been a driving force. I wonder to what extent revenge has played a part in what you have been driven by, what momentum revenge can give a person. Because if you describe yourself as somebody who, you know, you use the word loser yourself, you know, had not a high achiever at school. I mean, is there is there a, a sense that you want to prove to someone that you can be someone who can achieve something? Yes. I didn't think about that, you know, the first 45 or 50 years of my life. But when I sat down to write this book, I started to see it's, you know, you do what you do for many things. Only one reason. And certainly one reason I've been doing all these expeditions is, you know, a little bit of revenge. Uh, Revenge is a strong word, but still, I think it's about, you know, you being bullied at school. Your brothers were not that nice to you. And, you know, you feel for revenge. And I think it's kind of undervalued motivator for most people that, you know, if you have a too pleasant childhood, you don't have that much to fight for. And I also think to add to that, I think, you know, it's also about, you know, showing your father that you are, you know, that you are an impressive guy. Because, of course, all boys, they have a problematic relationship to their father. And all you father. really believe that that exists for every single boy child? Yeah, I, I'm sure it's exceptions, but certainly almost every boy have a complicated relationship to their father for, you know, maybe only for a few years or for a longer time or, you know, so for quite a few for their whole lives. What was your relationship like with your father? It was kind of... You know, he was he's he's still alive. So you know, today you know, I, I love my father, and you know, whatever he did wrong, I have forgiven forgiving him a long time ago. But you know, it was middle lower middle class middle class family in Norway in the sixties and seventies, and my father and my mother they were kind of working hard to kind of make it make it possible to have a nice place to live and uh, my father was you know it was it was you know we didn't have a tv we didn't have a car we only listened to jazz music pop music was a disease according to my father so he, he was quite a tough guy a rough guy so treat, quite austere yeah, as, a, quite, as an upbringing he, he treated yeah he treated us in a you know in a loving but you know really kind of a rough way and um, I was first into my 20s, I started to see really good sides with my father. And um, yeah, so I think that, you know, I think for actually for most girls, wives, girlfriends, you know, if you keep in mind that, you know, your boyfriend or your husband, that he's, he has been or he still is struggling with his father. I think that would kind of, you know, explain quite a few things. That's very interesting. <laughs> and, I, and you have three girls yourself. I, I wonder, I, I wonder to what extent you've reflected on how you might have brought your children up differently had you had a boy? Yes, and I'm very happy I have daughters. I would be very happy, <laughs> certainly happy if I had boys too, but uh, <laughs> I'm very happy I have daughters. And I've also been reflecting about, you know, 
my mother living in this martial family with two, you know, three sons. And I think, you know, somehow the good thing with mothers, you know, they love you anyway. But you never thought about your father's love as a, as a boy. But you're you know, quite certain that your mother will love you, you know, independent of what you're doing. What, what does your father think about your achievements now, I wonder? I think the first time I can remember, he said he was impressed by me. What I've been doing was when I was 27 years, 30 years old, when I walked to the South Pole. I'm sure he was impressed before or, or happy, but, you know, he didn't really uh, express it to me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in the book, you you return time and again, even if not explicitly, to this idea that when people say, oh, I wish I could do what you have done, or wow, that's an extraordinary achievement, I couldn't possibly do it. It's interesting your response to that, even in your own head, if you don't say it to the person who said it to you, which is, it can't possibly be true because if they wanted it enough, they would try. I think at least that's quite often the case. Um, I still remember the first time I heard that comment and uh, we had just sailed across the Atlantic with uh, three friends and myself in 1983. And the first guy I met, he said, you know, I've always been dreaming about doing the same thing as you were doing. And that's something I heard so many times. And I think quite often it's pretty inaccurate. Yes. This, is, this idea of dreaming as well, you, you've alluded to it a little bit already, that, that somehow the, the dreams that we have as children are, are, are somehow eroded or, or cast to one side for all kinds of different reasons and, and the importance of holding on to them. Just, just share, share with us your reflections on the importance of holding on to a desire to do something. Yeah, I think, you know, it's when you're born, you have this 360 deg- degrees horizon and kind of everything is possible. And then, you know, slowly you becoming corrupted by your parents, uh, friends, kindergarten, school, that you can become more and more aware of everything which is impossible. Because, of course, at least, and I also was told as a kid, no, this is impossible, you will never be able to do it, blah, blah, blah. And then you're narrowing in, in your horizon. And, you know, obviously for gross national product, that's very good because, the, you know, you turn into a good, healthy taxpayers. But I think for personal lives, I think, you know, we'd be better off if we kept some of those dreams. And how, how do you suggest that people should try to hold on to that? Because it's a, it's a tough ask, isn't it? But it is a philosophical idea. I think, you know, it's, I obviously traveled in very remote areas, but I traveled more in urban areas and probably been to a hundred different countries and met thousands of people. And my impression in general is that most people underestimate themselves and the possibilities they have in life. Obviously, some people are overestimating themselves, but most people are certainly underestimating themselves. So I think that's one reason why you never stop dreaming, of course, but you're kind of very much limiting your dreams. And you do very little to kind of try to achieve achieve your dreams. I mean, when you talk about people underestimating themselves, I mean the the comment that you just made about some people overestimating themselves. The the balance between those two things is a tricky one, isn't it? Because you write in the book about the importance of not fearing your greatness. Ex- mm-hmm. Explain explain that. That's something I've, you know, been seeing more and more in life that people are afraid of their own greatness. And also think about my own youth, my teenagers. I was also, you know, kind of 
uh, didn't want to do, you know, didn't want to be different from other people, didn't want to do anything kind of extraordinary. And I was kind of afraid of, for instance, like, you know, you're falling in love with a girl, you would like her to be a girlfriend, and eventually maybe you're almost there, so you kind of feel you have her acceptance. And then you don't dare to go all the way because, you know, you want to stick to the to the known, to the safe, instead of venturing into something which is kind of unknown and less predictable and a relationship. So I think I see this in, you know, in, in, in relationships, in school, work and expeditions, that people somehow try to avoid to show their own greatness. And that was kind of opposite what I thought when I started to read and I started to write the book. So it was the opposite, and and you, yeah, that, that's the conclusion that you came to. That's yeah, because I think quite often, you know, people who are good at expressing themselves, obviously, they are, you know, they are not afraid of their own greatness. Like kind of lot, quite a lot of people in media, etc., or at the workplace, wherever people who talk the most, they are not. So kind of, it's easy to kind of, you know, get the impression that that's that's something general. So, but I kind of talking about everybody else. Let's take a pause just for a moment. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. I, I want to talk, Arlen Kager, about this connection to nature because you've obviously had it from a very, very young age. Your parents were constantly sending you out to, to play outside as opposed to, you know, watching television. You know, we didn't have, when you were growing up and I was growing up, we're about the same age, we didn't have smartphones and we didn't have video games and so on. So your your connection to nature started very young. I, I wonder if you can cast your mind back to being 10, 11, 12 and what, what that meant to you? It meant a lot and it still means a lot today that I was close to nature that early in life and um, at that time I didn't think about it as a privilege. I was never asked by my parents if I want to spend time in, in the forest and in the mountains and the oceans. They just send me out. But today for instance when I read about kids when I wrote the, my book I wrote about kids I read about kids in England how little time they actually spend doing outdoors I would I thought in England that the people doing the least outdoors in England would be people in prison but then it appeared that 20% of all kids in England are not doing any outdoors at all and 40% are doing less than one hour every day so when I think about you know my own childhood I, I think I was super happy and I think, you know, it's one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I really believe in the importance of reconnecting to nature. It, it feels it feels like such a, a visceral connection that, that you have. And, and you talk about the importance of grounding oneself in, in nature. And, and I was really struck by a particular uh, quote where you say Mother Earth is 4.5 billion years old. It's arrogant when we don't listen to nature and blindly place our trust in human invention. First of all, explain the impetus behind you saying that in particular, setting human invention against nature. I think it's, it's, um, it's, I'm not fancy kind of this anti-technology and anti-capitalist ideas, but it's, uh, it has simply gone too far. And also, you know, the fact that thousands of the brightest people on earth are working day and night to make, you know, make us addicted to different apps and uh, games, you know, it's, 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 it's very bad. And today, a kid will spend around four hours every day doing social media. 
And if you live until 84, which is kind of average age in the over part of the world, you will spend 13 years day and night of your life on social media. And that, again, you know, make people unhappy, make people lonely, make people sad, and eventually also make people depressed. And um, one of the lessons I have learned from spending much time in nature is that, you know, the importance of keeping your pleasures, keeping your joy simple. And that's an idea that it's thousands of years old. And I think it's important to, like, you know, any idea, any advice that I lasted for more than 1,000 years, we should take really seriously. And uh, what's happening today is that we kind of, you know, we're making our joys very, very complicated. And it's very much about running away from ourselves. And um, it's uh, deeply unhealthy. When, when, when you say it's about running away from, from ourselves, uh, just, just place that idea for me in the context of your, your exploration, because you clearly have spent a lot of time on your own. And perhaps you don't see it as a lot of time because these expeditions are kind of finite, I suppose. That's the, uh, that's the first thing to say about them. They do come to an end. But, but I wonder about the, the, the reflections that you have that are based on the solitariness that you've experienced. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's like I walked alone to the South Pole for 50 days and nights. And what's interesting, what's happening then is that after a few days, you start to get more and more contact, connected to nature. It's like your fingers doesn't, uh, your body doesn't stop by your fingertips or by your skin, but you're kind of being coming apart with nature. You're starting to have a conversation with the, with the environment, you're kind of sending some ideas out and get all the thoughts back again. And also, the nature is changing while, you, you know, the time passes by. Like when you walk to the South Pole, it's like everything is flat and everything is white all the way out to the horizon. But slow, Different shades of white, I suspect. Yeah, but so lovely, you start to see, you know, more uh, variations of white. You also start to see a bit bluish, reddish, uh, yellowish appearing. And it's not absolutely flat either. And then, of course, you, you wonder, am I changing or is Antarctica changing? And, of course, Antarctica remains the same, but you are changing. And, and, uh, and that taught me a great lesson on silence and uh, the importance of silence in life. Not only having silence, you know, surrounded by silence, because that's, that's difficult in most places, but certainly to kind of, you know, search for your own inner silence. And I read that Wikipedia actually a few days ago that silence is the opposite of noise, the opposite of sounds. But my silence is not the opposite of sounds. My silence, which I experienced in Antarctica, but also experienced when I visiting the UK, is, uh, no, uh, is noise. Noise in, in the sense of the cars passing, radio running, all these expectations and uh, from, from the different social media, distractions, man-made light pollution, all this to me is, uh, is noise, the opposite of silence. And then again, is it possible to find silence in Manchester or London or Birmingham, whatever? Yes, certainly it is. And, uh, but you know, you need to invent your own silence. You can't wait for silence to come to you. You have to, you know, look for it inside yourself and it's there waiting for you day and night. Well, what do you mean by that, invent the silence for yourself? It's, you know, you have to find your own silence in the sense that your silence will be different from my silence because your silence is very much about yourself. You know, it's very much about discovering yourself. Um, so in that sense, your silence will be different from mine. 
Do you do you think when you are you know you you talk about Antarctica not changing, and I know you're not referring to climate change and so on, but but in the context of that quote that I that I read back to you, that 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 we shouldn't blindly place our trust in human invention. I wonder how you reflect on human invention's ability to save the planet itself, this place that you obviously appreciate and are deeply rooted and connected to. Do you think that it's possible for us? Because we give ourselves an awful lot of credit credit collectively as human beings, don't we? we? We think we're ingenious. You know, we think we've evolved enormously, brilliantly. Thank you very much. And, and I wonder to what extent in, in your worldview, you think we have the capacity to save ourselves from disaster? Hmm, you know, <laughs> I wish I was uh, smart enough to give a really good answer, but I'm not. This is a question I'm struggling with. But obviously, uh, human invention has, you know, made it possible to live as we're doing. And I think it has very many, many good sides. But now, of course, it can also destroy humanity. It's not possible to d- destroy the earth, but to d- destroy the humanity. But, you know, I'm optimistic. And one reason I'm optimist is because I think the world needs more optimists today because so many people are uh, uh, negative. But it's also my impression from the history of the world is that optimists have more, been usually, you know, much more often right than the pessimists. And it's also much so much easier to be pessimistic than optimistic. So I think I'm optimistic about the future. And yes, I think that human invention can do many good things also in terms of if not saving the climate or you know, changing it, at least you know, make it less bad than it has to be. Th- th- this idea of, of the, it being easy to be or easier to be negative than it is to be optimistic, I, I, I'm curious about where, where your sense of yourself has come from in the context of the family life that you've had and the, the experiences that you've had. Where's the impulse to do any of the things that you've done? Where does that come from? Uh, I think quite often in life you do things despite of and not because of. Uh, in the sense that my family didn't have any any explorers. My father is a jazz critic and my mother worked in a publishing company. Quite ordinary lives, nice lives. I was very privileged in the sense in addition to being sent out into nature all the time. We also had great books in our bookshelves and we had great music. So um, I think I got many ideas from, from reading books when I overcame dyslexia. And also I think, you know, because I, I was lonely, you know, for quite a, quite a lot when I was a kid. And, you know, that was good for my fantasy, for my, you know, life and imagination. Yeah. How much does humility matter to you? Because I was so deeply struck by an incident that you recount in the book with Sir Edmund Hillary, well, he wasn't Sir then, in 1953, just approaching the, the top of Mount Everest and, and Tenzing, Tenzing Norgay being the one who was going to be the first man on Everest. Just tell us that story. Yeah, because it was a big mystery for a few decades who of the two guys came to the summit first and uh, neither of them, you know, you know, s- s- you know, came with any details. But then late in life, Tenzin Norgay, you know, t- you know, talked about how he was walking towards a peak ahead of uh, Hillary and, of course, you know, making the steps into the snow, big time help for Hillary. But then, you know, very close to the summit itself, Norgay stopped, 
had a break, and then he let Hillary go ahead of him. So Hillary got to the summit. And I really like that story because it just shows it was so much more important for a white man with a Western tradition to get to the summit in a physical sense. And I also like to believe that for Tenzing Norgay, he kind of felt that his people had been to the summit in a spiritual way so many times anyway. So it didn't really matter to come up there as a second person. You say you really like that story. I mean, it 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 is a um, it's a beautiful story because it it does tell you so much about an acknowledgement of the power that's at work in those those two relationships, but also about humility. and And I and I I'm really interested in your pursuit of the different spiritual ways of thinking that appear in the book. You know, you turn to not just Western philosophers, but to Eastern philosophy too. When did that first become something that you were interested in? I think I was interested in, in the ideas I write about uh, in my teenagers uh, the first time. But for quite a few years as a, as a teenager, I want to party and uh, try to chase girls and uh, live a different life. And then late in teenagers, you know, I start to feel for turning back to nature again. And so I think most of these ideas have been with me the whole time, but then have developed because um, because I experienced so much more in the meantime. And I also think, you know, one thing is to be doing extreme expeditions and lots of traveling and lots of outdoors. But I also think for me, it was important to have a job as a publisher and also be a family man to kind of put it into perspective. Because I think my ideas 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was, you know, too focused on doing extreme matters. And as I said, you know, later in life, I understood it was <laughs> almost, you know, in one way as extreme to raise three daughters as doing an extreme expedition. But there's something very sweet in the context of the conversation we've had um, about revenge that you should be running a publishing house given that you had to overcome dyslexia. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's... it's, um, it's uh, and it's not a revenge over some people. So it's not kind of a payback time. It's more like, you know, I had a hard time to learn how to uh, both read and uh, write. Um, and also to talk, you know, in a proper language. Um, so, yeah, so then, you know, at, when my girlfriend got pregnant in 1995, I needed a job and I started a book publishing company and uh, also, you know, kept on writing books. So I think it's very much related to, you know, uh, the hardship I had when I was a kid. There is also a, a reflection in the book on happiness and just the idea of it. You you talk about the the number of countries that you've visited and the you know thousands of people that you've met in your in your travels. This is an issue that comes up time and again, not just for philosophers but for policymakers, for politicians all the time. You know, are, are, are we happy? Are people happy? What makes people happy? How would you how would you define your reflections on on that issue? Mm. I think it's a very important uh, issue because, as I said, politicians, you know, media, you know, always writing and talking about 
Are people happy? Am I happy now? How happy are you on a scale from one to seven or one to ten? And I think that's based upon partly, you know, on a deep misunderstanding. And and in the sense that, first of all, I think, you know, the idea that you should be happy all the time is very naive because, you know, you can't be happy all the time. And, 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 uh, and also, I think, you know, it's very hard quite often to know if you're happy and if you're not happy. And so the movie the other day, someone said that uh, my problem is that when I'm happy, I'm unhappy. And when I'm unhappy, I am happy. And I think that's, you know, quite often the case. Um, so, and also this kind of short range that you're kind of happy because you buy yourself a new pair of shoes and then you're unhappy when some new neighbor gets an even nicer pair of shoes and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, these things in one time, in you know, one sense, of course, they're important, but that, you know, but to kind of think about it as the meaning of life to gain this short-term happiness and not respect that also, Pain uh, and you know uncomfortable circumstances, both physical in physical sense and psychological psychological sense, also super important part of, of our lives. And we're not able to feel any happiness if you're not you know also suffering in between. So you know that's certainly something you learn from doing expeditions that you appreciate. You know that life has more than one goal. When when I when I was reading your book, I was struck by your willingness to talk about your your own personal circumstances because so much of your reflections come out of that. But I I wonder what your children think about the books that you've written and the person that you are and the father that you are. <laughs> I'm wondering myself, <laughs> but it's uh, it's um, you, you know, know because on the one hand one can, you can you one, one can look at your life and in through every conventional prism and I know that you're trying to get outside of that conventional prism. You are an exceptionally um, accomplished person you have achieved beyond all kinds of odds and 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 done extreme things and and done it successfully and and i wonder i wonder how much you think about the impact that that makes on on children because you clearly think that you want to ensure that they keep that curiosity and the dreams alive in in themselves individually but they also have a father who has done these extraordinary things yeah, so that sense, <laughs> it's nice not to have sons. No, but it, uh, <laughs> oh, just kidding. But it's uh, it's uh, at home. We, we have hardly ever ever talked about any expeditions or any martial stuff or extraordinary stuff because life goes on. But having said that, uh, I remember when my book Silence came out a few years ago. Of course, I was very proud with the book, and I gave one copy to each of my daughters and the two oldest at the time were 17 and 19 and they read the book and they were happy and some of the friends read the book and um, yeah and you know they're still very much attached to their smartphone but at least they saw their life in perspective while my youngest daughter who was 15 at the time uh, she started to read the book and stopped and felt it was absolutely bullshit. So. <laughs> <laughs> and she told you this, did she? Absolutely. At, you know, she didn't get it. And of course, you know, if you're 15 years old, you don't necessarily get the value of silence. I remember when I was 15, silence was about being let out, was about being lonely, it was about being bored, it was about waiting for something. 
So, you know, it took me quite a few more years before I learned that silence can also be, you know, a very good friend. Well, I'm delighted that you were far from silent during the course of this conversation. (laughs) I feel I've been feeling slightly bad making you speak as much as you have. Um, Arlen Kaga, Norwegian polar explorer, thank you so much for speaking with us uh, for this Intelligence Squared podcast. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.